Hi, this is Liz Craven. Welcome to Sage Aging. This is your podcast for understanding the aging and caregiving journey and connecting to the information and resources that will make your experience better. Before we dive in, let me remind you that you can find all Sage Aging episodes, the Sage Aging Elder Care Guide, and much more at eldercareguide.com. This is episode 63 of the Sage Aging Podcast, and we have a great conversation to share with you. I was joined for this episode by Keith Gibson. He's the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Alzheimer's Association of Florida. And I wanted to chat with him because I was curious about why diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DE&I, you may hear it referred to that way, are important in healthcare and in research. And we also had the bonus of getting to hear a little bit about Keith's own caregiving experience as well. Now, sometimes conversations surrounding DE&I can inspire some angst, but I assure you this is not a conversation like that. It was so interesting to get a behind-the-scenes look at the role that DE&I plays in research and in delivering therapies to patients. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I learned so much, and I think that you will too. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thanks so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, there are three little words that we're going to talk about today that have such a big impact on so many facets of our life and society. Today, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation. But while our listeners marinate on those words for just a minute, why don't we start with having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, it's my pleasure. I am the Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Alzheimer's Association for the state of Florida. And I'm also one of two research champions. I have been with the association since June of 2016, and my responsibility as a director for diversity, equity, and inclusion is overseeing all the all aspects of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative for the Alzheimer's Association. That's my professional connection to the disease. I have a personal connection to the disease because I was a caregiver for my brother who died at age 54 from vascular dementia. And that was a blessing in disguise because it really helped me to really understand the the standpoint of the journey of being a caregiver and providing that support and care for a loved one. Boy, isn't that something, once you join that club, the caregiver club, you view life in a completely different way, don't you? Absolutely. One of the things I always like to share with our constituents, and particularly our caregivers and the persons that are living with the disease, is that as part of the journey, you will become a student of the journey. And it's really up to you in terms of what type of student that you would want to become. And that could be a good student or a bad student, but at the heart of that, which really makes that determination, is your willingness to change because this is going to be a journey that's going to have a lot of 
turns and twists and you just have to be prepared and open to change. If you are prepared and open for change, you will definitely see the difference of learning more about the disease and as well as helping you to understand what's in store. So in your own story, did you have a lot of familial support when you were caring for your brother or were you kind of out there on your own? In the very beginning, I'll tell you what triggered my brother's vascular dementia. He suffered two major medical events. He suffered a massive heart attack and a stroke all at the same time. And so really it was like, we were in shock because, you know, we're dealing mostly with the health issues. First and foremost, the heart attack left his heart severely, severely damaged and the stroke left him paralyzed on his left side. And so there was not that much that they can do with my brother's heart condition beyond medication and short of having a heart transplant. So the focus kind of like pivoted to just simply helping him regain the use of his left side, which was done through physical rehabilitation. But I knew that I had some knowledge of the disease and how to go about to get a probable diagnosis. And to get a probable diagnosis, you would need to have three doctors involved, the primary care physician, the neurologist, and a neuropsychologist. And to get all three to communicate with each other to get to that probable diagnosis, it, it was a bit of a challenge. But once I was able to get through that, that challenge and get that probable diagnosis, that's when the planning of the care came a top priority. And being the youngest of nine, trying to coordinate that with my older siblings and getting them to understand about the disease and what's all going to be involved in this journey, it was a bit of a challenge because they were like, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe he's better off being left in a a long-term care facility like a nursing home. And I was very adamant that, no, I wanted my brother to come home. And so I made the choice to bring my brother home to live with me. And after a period of time, my family members finally got on board and they started to provide that support and relief that all caregivers need because, you know, you're talking about providing care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's not uncommon for the caregivers to expire before the person that has the disease from the lack of not taking proper care of themselves. And so it was like, a, it was a, in the beginning, it was a little bit, you know, bit of a challenge, but through educating and my family members understanding what I was doing. And again, that's where that change agent comes into play. I didn't force it on them. I respected their decision early on to kind of like, have a hands-off approach. But then when they saw what I was doing and they saw my brother and how he was responding, they got on board. And that really helped make the caregiving a little bit more of an easier journey versus one caregiver doing it with all by themselves without the support of family members, because family members can, they can pose a little bit of a challenge and even add to the stress of the, the primary caregiver because of them not wanting to be involved. And that mm -hmm. is not a good dynamic to have in the very beginning. No, it isn't. Boy, that is a whole episode all on its own talking about the caregiver dynamic. Every family is different. Every situation is different. And I'm so happy that yours 
ended up the way it did. A little bit of a rocky start, but you guys got there. And that is such a credit to your family. And I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm sorry that you all had to go through that. But it has turned into a blessing for other families because here you are making a difference. Absolutely. I tell folks all the time that I have the greatest job in the world because I am able to share my brother's legacy and to share testimony to letting them know that there is hope and that in all of this, you know, we're in search of a cure. We're searching for a a, a way to slow or stop this disease. But the best medicine that's readily available right now does not come in a bottle, does not come in the form of a therapy. It's an emotional medicine called love. And Mm. that to me just transcends so many barriers that you would face with your loved one. Because I tell you early on, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I was not a good caregiver. And that was because I was more focused on the disease than the relationship. And the moment that I was able to pivot from the focus on the disease and the focus on the relationship, I became a much better caregiver. And my brother became so much more comfortable because, you know, we didn't allow that focus to consume us. We said, you know what, we're going to live each day to the fullest. And I just loved on my brother. And um, he responded, particularly when he would have those moments when, you know, the behavior became of a challenge, but he would have the wherewithal to tell me, you know what, or ask me, I was bad, wasn't I? And I would say to him in response, you know what, I love you so much. And I would give him a hug and a kiss. And he would say, I love you too. Because that was a mechanism to not have him to focus on the disease, but just the relationship to let him know that I'm his brother and that I loved him and that no matter what, we were in this journey together. And that was so rewarding because we had a great time together. You know, it was to the point where we stayed in the moment. We didn't worry about things being perfect or him not being able to do all the things that he used to do and me reassuring him that's okay. That just made a big difference. It made a world of a difference. What a true gift you gave to him. That's just beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. So let's jump into today's topic. You mentioned barriers before, and there are a lot of barriers when it comes to healthcare, but there are more barriers for some than for others. And I think all of us have probably had a part in some conversation or another about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But let's start at the beginning of that and really define what that means. What are your thoughts on that? At the Alzheimer's Association, our mission is to lead the world to end Alzheimer's and all other dementias. And this is done by accelerating global research, driving risk reduction and early detection, and maximizing the quality of care and support. But we we cannot succeed in that mission if we do not have input from all of the communities that we serve. And that's why strengthening diversity, equity, and inclusion is one of our key pillars. The association recognizes that it's going to take the broad concept of diversity, which is to include the consideration of, but not limited to, race, ethnicity, gender, age, social economic status, sexual orientation, regional place or national origin, 
religion, language, and persons with disabilities. When we talk about inclusion, we want to be inclusive of all these diverse constituents that we serve and to ensure that their interests and needs are welcomed and fully considered in our multiple communication platforms, our mission activities, and even in our business practice as an organization. Because we want to increase our reach and mission engagement level with the audience. And the way that we're doing that is by committing to identifying the barriers that may prohibit members of the Black, African American, Hispanic, Latino, and the LGBTQ communities from receiving information about Alzheimer's and education and resources. So tell me how come that matters. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Some people will say research is research and resources are resources, but there is a difference. Why is that? The best way to frame it is to put it into the proper perspective of statistics. Although whites make up the majority of more than 6 million Americans that have Alzheimer's disease, African-Americans and Hispanics are, are at a higher risk meaning African-Americans are about twice as likely as whites to have Alzheimer's or another dementia. And Hispanics are about one and a half times more likely than whites to have Alzheimer's and or other dementias. When we're looking at the LGBTQ community, we realize that statistically speaking, LGBTQ older adults are twice as likely to remain single as they age, twice as likely to live alone, and three to four times less likely to have children to support them, resulting in a challenging environment for addressing dementia-related issues. The stigmatism that comes and discrimination that many in the LGBT community experiences across their life may continue into their later years. And so there's going to be a fear of mistreatment from healthcare professionals and aging providers that may cause our LGBTQ elders to delay seeking care until their health deteriorates and hits a crisis level. Mm -hmm. So to put that in a, a nice perspective, we want to look at addressing the health disparities the health equity, those statistics are clear indication of health disparities and health equities. We're talking about having access to proper treatment and care. And last year's Facts and Figures, which is a report that's published every year, it identified that discrimination is a barrier in accessing health care. And it's going to definitely take awareness of the unconscious bias that really exists when you're talking about people that are of a different color or origin or sexual orientation and them having access and to be belonging because we all have unconscious biases that we may not be aware of. So when you ask me what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean, I can just sum it up into one statement, unconscious bias. That's mm. really what it is. When we can eliminate that unconscious bias, then those numbers, those statistics that I just shared will definitely go down. Wow. Unconscious bias. Now there's something we should all be digging into. That's an ouch moment where you go, okay, let me dig a little deeper within myself. I know we all have them. Whether Absolutely. we want them or not, they're there. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, that's the whole thing is to have that conversation. And it's not to be judgmental, but it's to be 
you know, creating a feeling, a sense of belonging, a safe space, as we can say. Because when we look at working with our diverse communities, it's based on achieving three primary goals. And the first goal is to build that trust with them. The second goal is to improve communication. And the third goal is to develop cultural competency. And that's more so from an organization like the Alzheimer's Association, because, you know, I can really tell you that in June of 2020, the Alzheimer's Association came out in light of the George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and others. We came out and made a statement that we are against social injustice. And the statement that we shared on our social media and even on our website says it all. We are working for a different future. And that future is a future that's inclusion. Everyone feels like they belong. They feel safe. And that's what we want to achieve through our work. Because again, In order for us to be true, we have to be able to establish that sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. regardless of where you are, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your gender identity, your age, your social economic status, sexual orientation, and so on. So all of those things should not even matter when you're seeking access to health. Because one thing I can tell you is that Alzheimer's does not discriminate. It does not see any color. It doesn't see any face. It does not see any type of difference. It's a disease that impacts and affects so many people on so many levels. Yes, it is. It is. I've seen it across the board, including my own family. And it is a journey that is challenging at best. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. So it's very nice to see this type of initiative going forward and that the Alzheimer's Association is a part of the larger conversation. Because as I mentioned before, we've all been party to all kinds of conversations about diversity and equity and inclusion. But especially in terms of healthcare, it's important. And another factor that contributes to that importance is in terms of research. Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, my God. That is so, so important because when it comes to research, we're looking to make sure that no matter what treatment we come up with, that it will be available for all people, not just a few. And just to speak to the importance of diversity in our research is the fact that once we find a mechanism or a biomarker, which is a way to detect through testing, we want to make sure that our government is going to be able to pay for it. A clear example of that is the new ideal study. The original ideal study which was approved by the FDA, which using PET scans and MRIs to be used to detect early memory loss and cognitive decline. The results were amazing, and therefore the FDA approved the use of PET scans and MRIs. So with that approval, now comes the sticker shop the cost for getting a PET scan or an MRI. A PET scan or MRI can cost anywhere from four dollars to $5,000. So this was presented to CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And they were saying, this is great 
However, we don't see diversity in your study. So we need for you guys to go back and we need to see that diversity. So now that launched the new ideal study, the target groups are 4,000 black and 4,000 Hispanic to be included in that study. So that way we can show a wide range of diversity. Because again, if the study is only going to be originally targeting the white participants, then that's really not an all-inclusive study. Because again, when you look at it, you, you have to look at it from the standpoint of, I'll just use high blood pressure medication, okay? You may have the high blood pressure medication that may be intended for the general population, but it may not have the same attendant effect in diverse communities because the biology is different. So therefore, we need to, when we're looking at a, a cure or a mechanism, we want to make sure that it's all inclusive. The mere fact that you have research, which is being funded by the, the National Institute on Health, as well as the National Institute on Aging, these are public entities that are based on grant dollars that are being given to researchers. And these are public dollars. So we need to make sure that those public dollars are adequately spended properly. So that's why it's very, very important for us to realize that we have to include all populations, not just a select group. And that's why, to bring it full circle, last year, June, we had the approval of the drug therapy Aducanumab, which is now known as Aduhelm. Now, again, we know the participants in that clinical trial, 93% of them were white. And now in January, CMS gave a draft decision on the approval for payment of this drug therapy, Aducanumab or Aducanumab. And in their draft, they said, well, we only will pay for those folks that are in approved clinical trials. Well, that in itself it's very discriminatory because that leaves out folks that may not have the means to be able to pay for the cost of that treatment and may not even have the ability to be involved in that type of clinical trial, which will leave out your Black and your Hispanic communities and those that don't have the means socioeconomically to participate in those types of uh, clinical trials. So when it comes to research, research is so, so important when it comes to health equity and health disparity, because that's the only way that we can really address as we said earlier about the unconscious bias, because we need to make sure that everybody has access to the best medicine, no matter what their background may be. Wow, that's incredible. That was a lot. You may have to review that, folks, again, <laughs> and we'll recap that for you in a blog post that will go along with this podcast episode. But to simplify Basically, what we're saying is there are a couple of negative outcomes that can happen if we don't have diversity in our research. And number one, and the one that stood out to me the most, is the fact that we can have a difficult time getting medicines and therapies approved 
if the research was not done in a very diverse way. So they're going to say, in other words, well, wait, you need to go back and redo that research, which is double the dollars and double the time to get that research done. And that, to me, really stood out as one of the most important factors as it relates to research. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And matter of fact, there is federal legislation that is being proposed to make sure that when these clinical trials and studies are being presented for funding, they will have to have that diversity component. As a matter of fact, the federal legislation is called the INACT Act. And this legislation is designed to ensure that when researchers submit their research for these grant dollars, that there is going to be diversity embedded in their research study. So that way we don't have to waste dollars by having a part two of a clinical trial. Once we get to those amazing results, like with I said earlier about the ideal study and you get the FDA approval, but then now we can get the FDA approval, but now we're going to need to identify how are we going to pay for this. So if we address that up front, at the very beginning, that's going to save a lot of time versus having other ancillary studies that will have to go along with it from the initial study. Wow, that's so fascinating. All right. So let's talk about this then in terms of partnerships that the Alzheimer's Association is engaged in. Well, in terms of partnerships with our DEI initiative, we have identified a total of 21 national partners. Let me share a few of the partners so you can see how these partners are so important in what we're doing. One of them is the National Football League Alumni Association, and this partnership is aimed at raising concern and awareness of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias while providing care and support resources for those individual and families that are impacted by this. So with this partnership, during the next two years, the Alzheimer's Association will work with NFL alumni to deliver education programs and materials to more than 9,000 NFL alumni members in the public. So that is also one organization that we're working with with our DEI initiative. We're also working with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. It is through this national effort that we're looking to reach African Americans and provide a community with important information regarding Alzheimer's detection, diagnosis, care, treatment, and research and advocacy. We also have a national partnership with the Mexican consulate. And this, again, is highlighting programs that will play a very vital role in the Hispanic and Latino communities because education is so important with all of these partnerships. We also have a national partnership with SAGE. SAGE is is Services and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders. SAGE is considered the country's largest and oldest organization that's dedicated to improving the lives of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender older adults. And it's through this partnership that we're 
committed to a strategic and multi-pronged partnership approach that will help evolve and identify the needs and learn best practices and explore opportunities to engage our LGBT communities with the full mission of the Alzheimer's Association. There's 21 of them. I can, I can go on. Oh, but. gosh. <laughs> well, do you have those in a list? We could actually attach those to the blog post. Um, Absolutely. I can, I, can we... send, I can send that over to you. Perfect. Bob. That's yeah, perfect. I mean, but, and we're still looking to grow our national partnerships because, again, we're of the thinking that we are better together. And what better way to serve our diverse and underserved communities by working with organizations that are dedicated to doing the work in these communities so we can just come along and add support and bandwidth to their reach in these communities. My guess would be that there are quite a few superstar initiatives that have come out of some of these partnerships. Are there any that really come to mind as standouts for you? The Superstar Initiative is right now we are working with the National Association of Hispanic Nurses to educate the Hispanic community about research and the importance of it. And this is tied to the drug study called AHEAD, which is involving the drug called Lacananab which is in a class of drugs like Agilhelm that is being used to treat the biology of the disease, meaning the amyloid plaques, whereas the other medications that are currently approved by the FDA, they only treat the symptoms. But Agicananab and the other drugs that are in this class, they are looking at treating the biology of the disease. Because if you can treat the biology of the disease, then you can have a greater impact of increasing the number of years that a person can have a productive lifestyle. And so we know with aducananab and the research that came out about that, it was identified to be able to reduce mild cognitive impairment by 22%. That's huge. So that means that a person, even though they may have early onset Alzheimer's, they can have a longer period of time to have a quality of life. Just a couple of weeks ago, the special report in that facts and figures addressed understanding mild cognitive impairment. One of the findings of that report is that the American public's understanding of mild cognitive impairment is low. However, the concern for it is high. Mild cognitive impairment is often confused with normal aging. It is not normal aging. What it is, is an early stage of memory loss and other cognitive ability, such as language or visual or spatial perception. It causes cognitive changes that are serious enough to be noticed by the person that is affected by it and their family members and friends, but it does not affect their ability to carry out their everyday activities of daily living, meaning their personal care. Symptoms of MCI may include forgetting conversations or misplacing items in the home or difficulty in keeping track of the train of thought or losing their way to a familiar place or even feeling overwhelmed when they have to make decisions or completing everyday tasks such as paying a bill. 
Research today is more geared towards early detection, early diagnosis, because there's really not that much that we can do for a person that's in the middle to the latter stages of the disease. But if we can be proactive in our approach, then we could reduce the number of people that will be impacted by Alzheimer's. And I'm so excited to share with you the fact that the Department of Elder Affairs and the Alzheimer's Association has partnered to create a program called All Stars. And it's a joint initiative to bring increased awareness of dementia and the resources available to Floridians. It's going to help the person to identify the early warning signs of Alzheimer's and other dementias. And it's also going to take the steps to receive an accurate diagnosis and understand simple communication tips. This program will also allow folks to be able to access resources that's going to be provided by the Area Agency on Aging, the Memory Disorder Clinics, and Dementia Care and Cure Initiative Task Force. And it's a challenge that we are putting to the entire state of Florida that everybody in Florida will become knowledgeable about dementia and they will be aware of the resources. The beautiful thing is that this program is totally free. So a person who's interested in registering for this program, all they have to do is go to allstars.org and they can register. And it's a 45-minute online educational program. And upon the completion of the program, the participants receive a certificate that says that they are an all-star. And what better way to let folks know that you are aware of Alzheimer's and you can actually help your neighbors to access resources because one of the things that is so evident about the Alzheimer's Association, a lot of people don't even know that we exist and it's all too common for me to hear from a caregiver. I only wish I had known about you early on so that way I could have been plugged into the resources because Mm -hmm. again, we provide the opportunity for folks to be able to help navigate this terrible disease, and we provide them hope. And as they go on this journey, it's so comforting to know that they have access to resources and that they don't have to go this journey all by themselves. Well, that is a great segue into the next piece of this conversation, which is exactly that. Why should families dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's connect with the Alzheimer's Association? And part of that is programs like All Stars. And I might mention, just to clarify, you do not have to be somebody who is dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia right now. This is intended for the entire community to build awareness around Alzheimer's because it affects all of us, whether we recognize it or not. When you are out in the community going to your favorite restaurant or maybe at the grocery store, there are people in your circle who are affected by this. And our own awareness makes a better situation for all. Absolutely. Because again, people are free to let other folks know that they're dealing with this challenge of this disease because they don't want to be judged or they don't want to be dismissed. Oh, well, that's not my problem. That's you. That's never going to happen to me. I always like to ask this question, particularly whenever I'm out in the public doing a program or delivering a program like this. How many of you 
actually know someone that has been affected by this disease? Usually when I ask that question, no one usually raises their hand or there may be one or two people. Then I say, let me rephrase it. How many of you know of someone who has a family member that has been affected by this disease? And then all the hands in the audience goes up because even though it it doesn't impact you directly, it impacts you indirectly because then you look at all the costs that are attributed to this. It goes back to the old expression, are you your brother's keeper? Absolutely. Because you can see that a person that has this disease, they want to remain as independent as possible, but they are afraid to reach out for resources because they don't want to be judged or they don't want to be labeled as, oh, they have Alzheimer's. And it's that stigmatism. So we want to, with this educational program like All Stars, and that's just one of them, we have a variety of programs that are available to the public at no cost. All of our services are free. We, we offer education, we have support groups for caregivers and even for caregivers and persons that are in the early stages of the disease. We're blessed here in Florida that we have two vehicles known as the Brain Bus that will come into communities to be able to offer information about this disease and, and help increase awareness about it. The the last two years has been somewhat of a challenge for us here in the state of Florida, as well as around the country and even the world. But now that the pandemic is kind of like slowing down, we are getting ready to get back out into the communities and to really let folks know that this information is readily available and we are here to help and to be of service to the communities. And the moral of that story is if you or someone you know, someone you love, if you're dealing with any of this, you need to reach out to the Alzheimer's Association because as mentioned, there are a lot of resources that are readily available to you, whether it is literature that you can consume on your own time, the website, which is incredible. You need to visit alz.org. I'll have that link in the show notes and in the blog post. But also, there are other things like support groups that were mentioned. There are webinars, tons of webinars that you can participate in live and ask your questions of the presenters. We've participated in a few of those ourselves, and it's amazing. There is constant information being pushed out for you. So if you or someone you care about is dealing with this, I'd really encourage you to plug in because that to the family who's dealing with this now That is what is most valuable to you, a place that you can go right now for support and information. So I hope that you'll take advantage of that. I'm going to provide all kinds of great links for you in the blog post and show notes. So I hope that you'll go and click through and browse some of those. Now, do you also have a crisis hotline, a 24-hour hotline? Yep, the 1-800-272-3900. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When you call, you will not get a recording. You will get a master level clinician, and they are truly passionate about what they do. We want folks to know that we, we are a resource that is there readily available for them. 
Well, thank you so much. This has all been really great information. And the last thing is a piece of sage advice from you that you'd like to leave our listeners with. The best sage advice that I can leave our listeners with is the fact that, one, you're not alone and that the Alzheimer's Association is here for you. And again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You don't have to go this journey alone. And if you know someone that may be struggling with that, please be a good neighbor and guide them to the Alzheimer's Association. That's the best thing that you can do for your your neighbor. And in this current time, we need to just simply operate with love, grace, and kindness to one another. I know that it's been hard over the last two years, but you know what? Love, grace, and kindness is really so important today. And that's the best sage advice that I can offer everyone. Love, grace, and kindness. What a beautiful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Keith, for joining me. My pleasure. Glad to be here. And thank all of you for listening. I hope this conversation was a positive thing for you. I hope it has led you to be more curious about what's happening surrounding Alzheimer's and healthcare in general. I hope that you'll dig in and learn a little bit more. You know you can have every episode of Sage Aging Podcast sent straight to your inbox, don't you? It's really easy to do. Simply go to eldercareguide.com and click on the subscribe link that you'll find on the left-hand side of the homepage. You can also find Sage Aging on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest, and we'd love to connect with you in any of those spaces that you enjoy. That'll do it for today, friends. Thanks for listening. We'll talk real soon.